I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, June 9th, 2015. Coming up, we talk with Dr. Thomas Johnson about his long-standing interest in aging and how he uses a nearly microscopic worm to investigate this process. As we get older, most of us get more curious about the hows and whys of aging. For five millennia, humans have been seeking ways to prolong life. Our longevity drugs just around the corner. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Aging baby boomers are at risk for developing osteoporosis, a disease that weakens bones over time. Too much bone breakdown by osteoclasts, cells that recycle bone material, and not enough bone formation by osteoblasts, the bone-building cells, can lead to osteoporosis. Two proteins are known to interact to stimulate osteoclast, that is, the bone-breaking cells, to stimulate their production. Recently, scientists in Seoul, South Korea, worked out some previously unknown steps in the metabolic path leading to osteoclast formation and bone loss. The scientists found that a protein known as a scaffold, which holds together interacting molecules, was central to the process. They used small RNA molecules to block the production of the scaffold and were able to reduce bone loss in mice. These results provide a potential therapeutic target for osteoporosis, which is important because there are no good treatments at this time. You may have felt relief a while back reading about how global warming has appeared to have taken a hiatus in recent years, actually since the turn of the century. Well, here's a party stopper. Last week, new research from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, revealed that so-called hiatus hypothesis was based on faulty data. The researchers did note that it was the best available information at the time, however. The NOAA researchers have come up with an updated analysis of surface temperatures. Their data show that global trends are actually higher than what has been reported, especially in recent decades, by the International Panel on Climate Change. The IPCC is the leading international scientific body that assesses climate change. According to the older record, temperatures from the year 2000 to 2014 had warmed at roughly two-thirds the rate of temperatures over the previous 50 years. The new analysis shows that the rate of warming in those two time periods is essentially the same. The NOAA research was published last week in the journal Science. Running, walking, hopping, or even slithering, the movements of animals across the landscape are captured in the tracks they leave behind. Some tracks last only a few moments and others become fossils that endure for millions of years. Steps in Stone, Walking Through Time, features real fossil tracks and trackways from the University of Colorado Museum of Natural History collections. Interactive exhibits invite children and adults alike to explore how animals from insects to dinosaurs moved across the earth, how their tracks became fossils, and how we study tracks to learn more about ancient landscapes and animals. The exhibit features never-before-exhibited trackway fossils from the collection of paleontologist Martin Lockley, recently retired from the University of Colorado, Denver. And more on the local science calendar this week. Come learn about how diet, exercise, and sex affect people's risk of genetic heart disease. Tonight, Café Scientifique Boulder will host a talk by Dr. Kristen Barthel, a CU, CU Boulder postdoc research fellow. She'll discuss her research on a particular heritable form of heart disease. It's called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or HCM, and it affects about 1 in 500 people. Men and women or are at equal risk of inheriting the disease, but it turns out that the way the disease manifests and progresses is often different between the sexes. 
Though it's poorly understood, young women have a protective advantage. So the event is tonight from 5.30 to 7 at West Flanders Brewing at 112 Pearl Street in Boulder. Dr. Barthel's talk will start at 6 o'clock, but best to arrive at 5.30 if you want to order food. For more information, email sigmaxi.cuboulder at gmail.com. are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Beth Bennett. Here in the studio with me is Dr. Tom Johnson from the Institute for Behavioral Genetics at CU Boulder. Over his career, he has pioneered the study of a genetic basis for aging using the microscopic nematode worm, C. elegans. Let's start with an overview of his research findings. And in fact, Tom, let's start by going back to when you first started studying aging. And as I recall, this was kind of a paradigm shift in science, looking at genes that influence the rate of aging. Can you explain that a little for us? Well, aging seems to be a very complex process. And because of that complexity, we don't really expect that a single mutational event that just changes a single gene can have the profound effects that we discovered that the gene age one actually does have. And you named this gene age one because it was the first gene that you found that controlled the aging process. That's right. It's the first gene discovered in a metazoan that is a multi-celled creature. And we proved that the mutational event was actually just in one gene. That gene has since been cloned or purified in a test tube and shown to be part of a regulatory process. And what does that gene do? So the, the gene is actually very similar and can function for a similar gene in humans that causes diabetes when absent. We call the, uh, the gene actually insulin and IGF-1, uh, a mouthful, but meaning that it is similar to those genes in humans. So in its normal state, the gene acts in a certain way that actually promotes aging in these worms. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. Yeah, and that was one of the real uh, difficult things to understand. Why would an animal have a gene that actually causes it to aging faster than it would otherwise? So it was many years after I published the first paper before people really started believing the results I had obtained. And so in its normal state, its its non-mutated state, what we would call the wild type, that gene promotes aging by doing what? So it ultimately regulates 6,000 different genes in the nematode. You may be surprised to know that there are just about the same number of genes in C. elegans as there are in humans. And a third of these are now under regulation of the age 1 gene. That's quite remarkable. That's an amazing story. And so it has a cascading kind of influence over a lot of different metabolic pathways. But it sounds like it promotes activity, and therefore we kind of wear out because of all this activity in metabolism. 
Exactly, exactly. So I think of, of age one as being a regulatory element that is upstream if you view regulation as a river moving from an upstream source of that water down to a plant where the water is going to be dispersed to thousands of, of households. So things that we do far upstream can have a profound effect on thousands of different outcomes. And the primary function of this gene seems to be to promote uh, development and fertility. Animals that lack this gene may live a long time, but they have a, a reduction in the number of offspring. And clearly, in evolution, animals and plants, all organisms, that leave the most offspring are the most successful, and then their genes become more common. So this gene, even though it shortens lifespan, has become more common. So then in the worms with the mutated form, what is their development and what is their metabolism like? Yeah, so the mutants are uh, slightly delayed in development and have a, uh, a major reduction, 30 or 40 percent, in offspring. But to make up for that now in the absence of this age one gene or any of the other genes in that river, the animals become much more resistant to stress. And that's a key that we're now focusing on by studying directly uh, mammals, and in particular the, the mouse. So we have longevity genes now that we think will function in the mouse uh, similarly to the way age one functioned in the nematode. So I want to come back to this issue of the mammalian model, but I think it might clarify things for our listeners if you explain a little bit about the, dealing with this question in the worm, that is, how do you manipulate the worms genetically and then assess their longevity? One of the reasons I started working on worms five decades ago was that uh, they have a very short lifespan. Under optimal conditions, they live only two weeks. And the age one mutant doubles that lifespan to about four weeks. By the way, now uh, other colleagues of mine in Arkansas have been able to lengthen that to 10 weeks or uh, almost uh, five times the, the normal longevity of these worms. That's remarkable, five-fold increase. Right. And those animals are difficult. They're, they're uh, a little bit fussy. They uh, require uh, more help than normal in old age, but they still seem to be moving fine, and uh, uh, reproduction is passed by... Uh, at the end of their life. So essentially it's a simple screening test. You can grow them on little plates much like the petri plates that people grow bacteria on and then you simply count the worms each day and see how long they live. Exactly, yeah. This is a, uh, a very simple process. As a matter of fact, I've used many high school students from the Boulder area to help me ask some of these simple questions. But in terms of the genetics, uh, the worm is a fantastic model because there's so many amazing genetic manipulations that can be done with them. Can you speak briefly about a few of those that you've used? Sure. So the the, the way we ultimately uh, do science is based upon the handles or the methodology. And as you said, the worm is terrific because we can create mutations in any one of those 20,000 or so genes and then ask what happens now that this gene is missing. It'd be like pulling a spark plug from an engine and asking how that 
missing spark plug now affects the operation of the engine. And we can do this systematically, and indeed we have. There's about 10,000 people, believe it or not, around the world who use C. elegans as their primary system. And we've uh, together uh, been able to knock out or eliminate every one of these genes one at a time to, to ask, what is the function of the normal gene? So now that you know the function of these genes that are involved in aging, it sounds like you've been able to manipulate them in mice and ask this question about lifespan in a mammal. One of the really interesting things is that because of the, uh, this evolutionary paradox, that is that we don't select directly for aging, the common strategy of finding a gene in a simple organism and then extending that to mammals doesn't work so well. Only 11% of the genes that we find in C. elegans would also be gerontogenes or longevity genes in humans. So we've developed a strategy where we screen directly mouse cells, embryonic stem cells, and we've come up with a way to identify mutants in the stem cells by developing what we call a transposon tag that inserts itself into the middle of the mouse gene and we can then detect the mutation in the mouse and clone and discover the function of that gene within 48 hours. Okay, so you can ask the same question in mice. You, you're not simply taking the genes that you identified in worms and then looking for them in the mice. You're actually doing the screen all over again in the mice. That's right, yeah. And we've developed a strategy that allows us to screen literally millions of, of mouse cells a week to potentially find even very rare mutational events. And so have you been able to develop some mouse lines that are long-lived using this technique? We, we have developed several uh, mouse lines, and we've got a library of cells, of mouse cells, waiting to be turned into, into whole mice. Um, it's a very expensive process. It, costs us about $100,000 per mutation to go from the cell to the mouse and then to, to develop and measure longevity in a cohort of these mice. If, if any of your re readers would be interested, we'd be pleased to accept donations. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> uh, this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. We're speaking with Tom Johnson about his research into the mystery of aging. So, Tom, you have some exciting results uh, extending your findings on aging into mammals. So let's go into the future now and predict what does this mean for us humans? The, the thing that we're trying to do in the laboratory is to come up with ways to have a healthy and longer lifespan. Nobody wants to have an extra 20 years of life and spend that time in a wheelchair. I personally want to be out playing tennis and you'd rather be hanging off a rock. So our ultimate uh, hope is that we can identify these critical genes and target their proteins using drugs that are specifically generated to have an effect, a pro-aging effect, so that not only will we have a longer life, but we'll have a much healthier life as well. Now, that sounds fantastic. I'm all in favor of that. So if we think about the age one gene that controls metabolism, can you speculate on how a drug might affect that gene's activity to give us that healthier, longer life? So let's look at age one. Age one is a protein that's found just inside the, um, the 
cytoplasmic membrane of the cell, and it can serve to uh, target a what we call a transcription factor, that is a protein that has as its primary roles the organization and regulation of those 20,000 uh, genes and proteins that the nematode has. So by manipulating the age one gene, by generating a drug that would glom onto or specifically interact with the age one protein, very similar to the way a key fits into a specific lock, we can target the drug so that age one is the only protein affected. Now, there's a problem with that as with regards to age one, and that is that I told you earlier that there's 6,000 genes that are downstream. So if you manipulate age one very much, you're going to re result in lots of altered products. So some of the earlier companies, including mine and competing, competitive companies, failed to find drugs that could specifically target and not create a lot of side effects. And of course, we don't want any side effects when we're dealing with something like human aging, because we're going to be here even longer. Exactly. And so um, do, you, do you worry or are you concerned that some people might be upset by your research, seeing it as a form of eugenics? Right. That's, that's actually something that, that we do uh, worry about a lot. The National Institute on Aging, for instance, has a series of um, slideshows addressing this process. I find when I teach my gerontology courses, I'm uh, going to do this fall, I find that most of the students there, being in their 20s, have little uh, anxiety about not having a longevity drug. But myself and my colleagues, we want them right away. Exactly. I can relate to that. So do you think that there are any drugs on the horizon? I mean, I know that I've heard stories recently about memory-enhancing drugs. Do any of these work on some of the genes that you've been working with? There, there are now in, the, in the, the literature good replications of at least three different drugs that um, look like they have modest effects on, on lifespan. And these have been replicated in a larger study that was paid for directly by the National Institute on Aging. So we have every reason to believe that there are some uh, modest effects, perhaps 5 to 10% increase in lifespan and very little effect on health, although that aspect of it is being focused on right now. Interestingly enough, these drugs have all been discovered as side effects of a drug that was originally identified to have another target. Okay. That sounds like a common story in pharmacology. And have you um, or others tested these drugs in mice, or are they screened pharmacologically or even in humans? So they are being tested right now in, in mice, and the, the longevity studies were conducted in, in mice in a what we call a mixed genetic background so that there would be a lot of genetic richness rather than just one kind of gene or one type of gene that would be present because we want them to be mimics and stand in place of the entire human population, which of course is incredibly varied in its uh, genetic structure. Exactly, which is both a plus and a minus for right. drug development. So what are you looking forward to in the next few years, Tom, in terms of your future research in this field? 
So I have moved in into mice lock, stock, and barrel here, and we're using mice directly to identify novel mutational events that would not be creating longevity genes or increased longevity in the worm. And we're doing this by mutating and studying mouse embryonic stem cells, identifying cells that lead to increased resistance to a variety of stressors. And this has been shown to be a surrogate for slowing aging in invertebrates. So we're hoping that that aspect of the overall characterization of this and their effect on stress carries through so that we can find these. And we're, we've actually already fought filed patents, and we're well on the way in several different areas to creating uh, drugs that we hope will produce a longer and healthier lifespan. Well, that's good news for all of us that have high-stress lifestyles. That's right. And so in the mouse embryo model, do you find that you can screen in the embryo itself, or do you have to grow the mouse up and then screen it in the adult mouse? So the screens that we conduct are directly in, in individual cells, and what we do is we st present a stress to these individual cells. And we've used many different st stressors, including uh, cryogenic conditions, that is, uh, ultra-low conditions for preserving these cells as a model for preservation of human organs, uh, in particular kidneys. So we, we are using the embryonic stem cells, which have been mutated with this targeting element that we call transposons. And these are jumping genes that can move around the genome. When they do so, they create a mutation, and they also tell us where they are so that we can immediately discover the genes within, within several days. From finding a mutant, we can identify the gene that was mutated. Well, that's fantastic research. Thank you so much, Tom. You've just been listening to Tom Johnson, professor in the Department of Integrative Physiology from CU Boulder. His fascinating research into the genes underlying the aging process may yield clues as to how to slow or even reverse the inevitable. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced and engineered by me, Beth Bennett. Additional contributions by Susan Moran and myself. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from a movie, A Brilliant Equation. Oh no, sorry about that. <laughs> from the Beatles. <laughs> Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comment? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Beth Bennett. This program is supported by you, the KGNU listener member, and by Independent Power Systems, a locally owned solar electric integrator located in North Boulder and serving the entire front range. Independent Power Systems offers electric system design and installation for your home, business, or commercial building project. Independent Power Systems is a SunPower Elite dealer and offers the SunPower Solar Lease. Details can be found at solarips.com or by calling 303-443-0115. 
It's just coming up on nine o'clock. This is Community Radio KGNU Boulder, Denver. It's going to be mostly sunny today. Expect highs close to 90 degrees in the metro area. Overnight lows around 60 degrees under partly cloudy skies. Slight chance of some thunderstorms in the afternoon coming back tomorrow. Highs tomorrow in the low 80s, but cooling off a bit on Thursday and Friday. An expected high Thursday in the mid 70s, but it might just get it up to the mid 60s by Friday with an increased chance of showers coming in Thursday night into Friday. Still lots more to come here. Terry will be in in half an hour for the morning sound alternative. Today at three on Metro, we'll bring you part two of a recent panel discussion that happened in Boulder. It's by an organisation, Jews as Black Allies, and it features members of the Black Lives Matter movement from Denver. That's part two of that discussion coming up today at three on Metro. Right now, it is nine o'clock. Stay tuned for Alan Watts. Welcome to another talk from the Alan Watts radio series number five, Myth and Religion. This is part two of the two-part series in which Alan Watts asks the question, is the traditional Western idea of God still intellectually plausible? Recorded in Philadelphia in April of 1971, it's called Not What Should Be, Not What Might Be, But What Is. Here's Ellen Watts. So I know I'm not that. But most of us are taught to think that we are whom we are called. And when you're a little child and you begin to learn a role, and your parents and your peers approve of your being that. They know who you are. You're predictable. So you can be controlled. But when you act out of role and you imitate some other child's behavior, everybody points the finger and says, you're not being true to yourself. Johnny, that's not you, that's Peter. (laughs) And so you learn to stay Peter, or to stay Johnny. But of course, you're not either. Because this is just the image of you. It's as much of you as you can get into your conscious attention, which is precious little. Your image of yourself contains no information about how you structure your nervous system. It contains no information about your blood chemistry. It contains almost no information about the subtle influences of society upon your behavior. It does not include the basic assumptions of your culture, which are all taken for granted and unconscious. And you can't find them out unless you study other cultures to see how their basic assumptions differ. It includes all kinds of illusions that you're completely unaware of, as, for example, that time is real and that there is such a thing as a past, which is pure hokum. But nevertheless, all these things are unconscious in us and they are not included in our image of ourselves. Nor, of course, included in our image of ourselves is there any information about our inseparable relationships with the whole natural universe. So, uh, this is a very impoverished image. 
When you ask a person, what did you do yesterday? They'll give you a historical account of a certain number of events in which they participated and a certain number of things which they saw used or were clobbered by. But realize at once that this history leaves out most of what happened. I, in trying to describe what happens to me this evening, will never be able to describe it. Because there are so many people here that if I were to talk about everyone whom I've seen, what they were wearing, what color their hair was, what sort of expressions they had on their faces, I would have to talk till doomsday. So, instead of this rich 